Hi, everyone. I'm Devin McDonald, a partner at OpenView, where I spend a lot of time talking to both aspiring and serial board members. This season on Build, we're talking about the journey to the boardroom. Each week, I'll speak with executives who will share their unique stories and insights to help you either consider what type of persona to bring onto your board if you're a CEO, and or help you think through what your path will be to get to the boardroom as an independent director. Now, on with the show. Today, we're joined by Anita Sands. Anita has had an incredibly successful career at major financial services firms like RBC, Citigroup, and UBS as an executive leading change management and business transformation. She's a very successful board member sitting on boards like Symantec, Pure Storage, ServiceNow. Anita, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure. Thank you so much for, for having me, Devin. Very excited to be part of your community. So let's talk about the early days of your career. Where did you initially start and what were your aspirations at that point? That's a great question. And it's one of those lovely questions where you can look back in hindsight and give a much more (laughs) smooth answer than what probably was in your mind at the time. But I started as a physicist. I grew up in Ireland and I went to university in Belfast and I did my undergrad in physics and applied math. And then I did my PhD in atomic and molecular physics because every girl needs one of those. But I decided about halfway through my PhD that a career as a research scientist wasn't my destiny. But I was really interested in the application and implication of science and technology in the world. So I decided that if I could get some scholarships, I would take myself off to the United States and study public policy. And at the time, my intent was to be one of the people that would sit on this intersection between public policy and tech. And I felt that there weren't enough people in the public sector who understood kind of the scientific and technical merits of some of the issues. And there weren't enough people from the technology industry or the science community that could really speak policy and, and help influence things in a in a constructive way. And 20 years ago, that probably didn't seem like as much of a relevant kind of problem or opportunity than it does today. So I think actually now we're really coming to a juncture where we're starting to see that interplay between technology, technology companies, the impact that they're having, the reach that they're having, and it opening up a lot of public policy questions. Um, and whether it's, you know, you look like at the Cambridge Analytica issue and what Facebook has going, gone through with, with lawmakers or Twitter, you look at, you know, a lot of the implications of, of AI and data and what we're doing on, on all of those fronts or biometrics. I mean, there's so many different facets to this. Cybersecurity, of course, being another one. I think it's a really exciting time, actually, to be one of the people that's interested in that intersection between policy and tech. But nevertheless, life has kind of taken me in in other directions in the meantime. I spent a decade in financial services and uh, where I worked as kind of a a CIO, COO type, always involved in enterprise transformation and innovation type roles. And then five years ago, I decided to make the most recent pivot in my career when I moved from financial services into the pure play tech industry. And I also at that time made the transition from being in an operating role to what I'm doing now, which is predominantly board work, some investment and some advisory work. So that's so interesting. For those major financial services firms, you're leading change management and business transformation. Would love to hear about some key points in your career when you personally went through significant change or transformation. 
It's a great question, Devin. And I actually used to feel at one point that both my professional life and my personal life had constituted so much change that that was a problem. That was actually a detractor. I worried about whether being somebody that changed careers or changed roles was was something that kind of damaged your personal brand. But then I decided to think about it in an entirely different way. And actually, I now believe that change is my calling card. That's what I do. It's what I've done. Uh, It's what I did as a professional in financial services in four different institutions. And in my own personal journey, as I just mentioned, there's been plenty of pivots and it's been a life that's taken me from Ireland to the United States to Canada. It's taken me from physics to financial services to tech. It's taken me from Wall Street to Silicon Valley. I've lived in four different uh, cities. So it's been exciting. And really at the end of it all, when I look back, I think that being good at change is actually a really core skill set for you to have, not only as a leader, because it's something you're encountering, obviously, all the time in today's business landscape, but it's also important in your own life to to not be afraid to make changes, to not be afraid to to change. And the lessons I've garnered from having done that are, are maybe two or threefold. The first is I look back and I realize it's really important to know what you're solving for at every point in your life. So when I made my most recent transition from financial services into tech, as a woman, I was a 38-year-old woman. I had just met the man who's now my husband. He came with a little wrinkle where he was a widower with five children. And then we got married and we had a honeymoon baby. So I went from zero to six kids, (laughs) literally sort of overnight. And I had come to the realization that what was important for me at this stage of my life was having some more time and some more flexibility in my schedule. And that meant that I couldn't solve for being the CEO of a company or I couldn't solve for a job that would force me to travel a great deal. So really becoming very comfortable with what is it that you are solving for at this point in your career, at this point in your life, and kind of putting those two things at the top of the scale. And But it's a logarithmic scale. Everything else slides down to the bottom really quickly. And that was it. That was important. The second thing is I've learned a lot about dealing with fear uh, as a result of somebody that's made a lot of changes. And when I really, really got underneath all of the feelings of fear and how they were holding me back in life, I've come to the realization that all fear boils down to two kinds of fear, either the fear of not being enough or the fear of not having enough. And for me, that fear manifested itself in this voice that's in the back of our heads. And I think particularly on the loud volume for women, where this voice in your mind, I call it, you know, kind of the roommate in my mind, and she's pretty obnoxious a lot of days. <laughs> but she's, she's always telling me that I'm not enough and I shouldn't do something or I couldn't do something or I didn't do it as well as somebody else did or, you know, all of this. And I really believe if we were to put that that voice in our mind on speakerphone, we would be horrified at how we speak to ourselves most of the time. So coming to the the understanding that she is not me um, was a really important thing uh, for me in life. And then finally, I've just learned that, look, life is full of uncertainty. People who have startups, people who are entrepreneurs and founders, they they deal with this. They live with it every single day, the uncertainty of how things are going to play out. And sometimes you just have to hold your breath, throw yourself off the cliff and have the confidence that you will figure out how to pull your parachute before you hit the bottom or that you have surrounded yourself with a community of people, whether it's your family, your colleagues, your team, that will build a safety net for you to land in before you hit the bottom. But sometimes you just have to take that leap and just have confidence that things will work out uh, for the best in the end. 
Yeah. No, I think those are really good lessons that you just shared there. We talk a lot about change within our portfolio. And as we talk to CEOs who evolve with businesses as they scale fast, this this topic often comes up. How do you as a, a CEO or an executive within a business really kind of grow or evolve as a business reaches new new levels? Right. Um, would love your thoughts on that. I mean, yeah, have you yeah. seen executives that, you know, transform themselves within growing businesses, whether, you know, they're on the boards you're sitting on, or even if it's your, yourself changing within an environment? Yeah. Well, let's maybe talk about the business side of it, because in my work as a director, I've certainly worked with companies literally of all, all ages and stages, and I've watched some of them scale very successfully. Um, so there's a few things that, that strike me in, in doing that. Probably the singular most difficult thing for any founder or any CEO who is scaling and growing a business is to know the point at which you have outgrown somebody on your team. And that includes yourself, the point at which you know that you yourself, this role, this the requirements, what the company needs right now is more than what you have to offer as a leader. Having that self-awareness is a very, very powerful thing. And somebody put it to me this way, uh, and this I think is even important for directors to bear in mind. If you're struggling with a, with a team member who's who's not performing, perhaps you know the role has outgrown them. They're just simply not kind of getting the job done to an ad- adequate extent, and you are struggling with that, you know that difference between a difficult decision and an unpleasant decision. Right, a lot of the time these decisions aren't necessarily that difficult. You know the right answer, but they are incredibly unpleasant. But one way to get around that is to ask yourself: Look, if this person were to come in tomorrow and resign, would I try and save him or her? And if the answer is no, well, then therein is your answer about whether or not it's time to let them go and move on. So I've I've found that to be a very helpful kind of framing for me as I think about talent and and the growth of teams in particular. But the other thing I've realized is that there are simply put, there are no there is no growth without growing pains, mm-hmm. and it is extraordinarily difficult. But it is, I think particularly when you get to a stage where you're really trying to scale in a very competitive situation, talent is scarce, resources are scarce, but the complexity that goes with moving from being a single product, single geography, single channel kind of a business to multi-product, multi-geography, that's extraordinarily difficult. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we've tried to advise our companies and our founders is put a set of people around you, not for the current phase of the company, but for the next phase of the company. Mm -hmm. So we did something really constructive at ServiceNow where we actually kind of called out these different phases of the company. And we said, okay, phase one is like not to 100 million. And phase two is 100 million to a billion, right? Again, this all sounds great in retrospect. Phase three is going to be 2 billion to four, and then phase four is 4 billion to 10. And at each kind of, when we started to think about those different junctures, the CEO at the time, the prior CEO, Frank Slootman, who's actually an exceptional leader, he just turned around, he said, look, I'm going to ask all of you as board directors, are you phase three board directors? Is that your sweet spot? Are you a phase three person? If you're not, I'm giving you the opportunity to take yourself off the hook right now. And he said, and by the way, I'm asking myself that. Am I a phase three CEO? Could I lead this company into the next phase? Yes. But am I the best person to do it? Maybe no. And he said, and I'm asking the executive team the same thing. Are you a phase three person in the role that you're in? And that was a very liberating framing. 
to give people because it allowed us all to sort of self-reflect on whether or not we were the right person with the right skill set for the next phase of the company, the next chapter, and to allow ourselves off the hook if we weren't. So I think some people actually opt out. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Including the CEO himself. Yeah. And he said, look, you know, I could do this, but I don't think I'm the right person. I think this company needs um, a different kind of a leader who specializes maybe less so in enterprise technology and more in consumer because we had a strong conviction that the experience of the employees was going, you know, in, in terms of enterprise software was going to really have to come up to par with the experience we have as consumers in dealing with the tech we have. Mm-hmm. And he felt that a company, you know, ServiceNow is a workflow platform. So we're very much involved in the re-engineering of processes and work and he felt that somebody that could have this really you know broad transformational conversation with a CEO or a CIO as opposed to a conversation about IT service management you know down in the ranks and files of the IT organization that's a different skill set and to his credit he he said look that's not me I'm an I'm an enterprise IT guy who sells to CIOs, but this company needs a sort of higher order, more transformational, broader type of a dialogue with our customers going forward. And he gave us the benefit as a board, and this is so important. He gave us the luxury, quite frankly, of solving for an outcome and not a timeline. And he said, look, we are going to solve for an outcome here that is a great succession plan, a great successor, a great CEO for the future. And whatever timeline that takes, I'm here and I'm going to run right through the tape to the very last day, whenever that person transitions. And that as a board is a complete luxury because the alternative is when you have to transition a CEO under other circumstances, you're forced to go into the market and kind of just take the best of the fish that happen to be swimming by at that moment in time. That's a very different uh, paradigm. I mean, that's that's pretty pretty heroic heroic that he did did that. Very much so. A very, very seasoned, experienced CEO. I mean, you know, Frank had been the CEO of Data Domain, which is a very successful enterprise uh, infrastructure company. And so he had sort of seen this movie before. But that was another big lesson for for all of us that were, you know, part of the team is that you need to have a blend of skills on your team of people for whom this is the first time and they're learning and growing and they bring that objectivity and they're not, you know, tainted or in any way kind of skewed by what they've seen in the past. Some of those and some people that have been to the movie before. You don't want to be running a company where everybody on your team is in the biggest jobs they've ever had in their life. That's not going to be the optimal outcome for you. You want a blend of talent. Mm -hmm. So Frank, I think to his credit, had the maturity. He had the self-awareness. Equally, the founder before him, Fred Luddy, had had similarly that moment where he knew it was time to transition to a professional CEO like Frank Slootman. So it's it's really, when I look at ServiceNow, I hold it up as a best-in-class example of how to transition from a founder-led company to that first professional CEO, and then that CEO handing over to the next person who's right for the next chapter of, of the company's growth. You know, I'm curious to know, what was your perception of boards before you joined one? Obviously, I'm assuming you were dealing with boards at some of the major financial services firms that you were working for. And did you see yourself as being a director eventually always? It's a great question, Devin. When you said that to me, I really started to reflect on it. The answer is, I don't think so. I, I guess I at some point decided that this was the next logical step for me in terms of the corporate ladder. I have, of course, skipped over from being a COO to a board director and never never done the CEO role myself. So maybe that will happen someday. And I think in terms of the perception of boards, 
I don't quite know what I would have expected. It's very different presenting to a board than being on a board. But what I've come to realize now is that really good boards, when they're constructed correctly, when they have the right skill sets, uh, when they have the right culture and the right relationship with management, your board should be a strategic asset for your company. Your board should be like a secret weapon. And nobody spends enough time, I think, really coaching CEOs through how to pick the best board, who to put around the table, how to interact with that board in a really constructive way so you get the most out of them, how to make sure you have a functional board with a great culture and not a dysfunctional board, how do you handle the transition from being an investor-led board with a lot of VCs on to maybe perhaps as you IPO or so forth, transitioning to a board of independent directors and rolling those VCs off. And I say, you know, as a director, one of the privileges of service is rolling off with dignity. I'm not sure that all of my fellow colleagues in the board world necessarily share that opinion. Um, I wish they did. So it's it's an important constituency for the CEO. It's one of, of several that he or she will have. And I think if it's a constituency that's built and managed correctly can be a very powerful asset for the company. But I think we quite candidly could do a better job in supporting and coaching CEOs when it comes to their boards. And I'm assuming you spend a lot of time doing just that with the CEOs that you're engaged with. I do. I also think I've been, uh, maybe I'll say fortunate, although I, I don't like to attribute a lot of things to fortune. I, I always give out to women when they when they say everything is a result of luck <laughs> because I'm like, it's not like God woke up and decided to give women all the luck in the world and, and men get none. We all do. But a big part of being on a great board is selecting the right board. And you have to pick a board that is uh, not only a business that you're very passionate about, but a board that has really good people on it because boards are easy when... You you know, as, as one of my CEOs said just this week, he said, great quarter, great board meeting, bad quarter, tough board meeting. It's easy when everything is going up and to the right, but that's not life. Eventually, you're going to hit those air pockets. It's going to be turbulent. It's going to be choppy. And when you're in the foxhole, that is when you realize who who your colleagues are. And you want people who will rise to the occasion and not the bait. You want people who will give the time that's required to do the job when all of these extra extra things hit your radar screen. So it's so important not only to select the right people to be on your board, but when you're thinking about joining a board, making sure you're very comfortable with who the other players are, that you feel there's an open, collegial, constructive, strong, communicative set of colleagues there, that you can all speak your opinion you can do so without hesitation, but that you will reach kind of a, a, a general consensus or agreement on how to shape the direction going forward. So I have been fortunate in that that the boards I've been on have had great, great people on them and great CEOs. Well, there's definitely a trend there in some of our conversations that we've been having around this topic of journey to the boardroom. Our guests have been talking a lot about that chemistry and the alignment of values with the CEO that you're going to be working with, just how important that is. And, you know, it might seem like a sexy brand and it might seem like a great opportunity, particularly if it's your first board opportunity, but you're really kind of locking yourself in there with this team and, and with this CEO. So there has there has to be alignment. 
That's right. It's not a short-term commitment. You know, I kind of think it's like a marriage, right? You're sort of in it for the long haul. But that's why you really have to be passionate about the business itself. I, you know, I, I'm a professional board director. This is what I do full time. And I take it incredibly seriously. So I think it's my job, not only to know kind of how the company is doing, but to know how our competitors are doing, to know how the industry is shaping up. I uh, make a real effort as a former CIO to keep up my network of CIOs and CTOs. So I'm out there talking to the customers of my companies um, and making sure I've got my ear to the ground as to how they're feeling about us, what their sentiment is. I also think it's really important that board directors today stay current on all of the trends that are happening in the tech industry. I can't emphasize that enough. I, I get very passionate about people saying, okay, well, we want a former CEO. We want you know somebody with kind of a, a great operational background to join this board. And I feel, yes, you need that, of course, but not not in every seat because you don't want a board that's surrounding you who are bringing the past into the present. You want a mixture of people who are bringing past experience, of course, but also a blend of people who are bringing the future into the present because they're meant to be there to help you make better decisions as a management team. The board's meant to be there to help you shape the strategy. They're not there every day. They're not operators. They don't know the operational ins and out of the business and nor should we. That's not our value proposition. So we have to think about where can we then bring foresight, insight and oversight, as I like to say, um, at the appropriate level coming from different angles and different perspectives and really bringing that cognitive diversity into the boardroom that helps the CEO think more clearly and helps the management team reach better decisions. That's our job. We're not there to tinker. So we had one great CEO and he used to always say whenever he felt we were getting too much into the operational details, he'd say, well, you guys, please all put your screwdrivers back in your back pocket. We're not here to tinker. So it's, yeah. it's noses in and fingers out, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's a level higher than... Like you said, the screwdrivers and actually doing the work, operating the business, right? Your first major board seat was uh, with Symantec, correct? Yes, it was, yes. Curious to hear how board seats initially started coming your way. Were you proactively reaching out to your network and kind of spreading the good word that you're ready and, and you want to start having these conversations? Or were you being approached by recruiters or VC firms? Just always kind of curious how some of these initial um, offers to join boards came your way. Yeah, yeah, and how to get on your first board seat is certainly yeah. a, a, a topic I spend a lot of time with uh, for potential directors and particularly potential female directors. I had decided it was something I wanted to pursue, and I had actually, I'm a member of the International Women's Forum, and they had run a program called On the Board in collaboration with George Washington University in D.C., sort of a year you know, a year-long, you know, three times a year sort of exec ed type initiative. And there were 13 or 14 of us, I think, in that class of, of IWF fellows, and I viewed myself very much as the runt of the litter. And I was like, oh, my God, these women are amazing. And I'm, how am I ever going to get a board seat compared to them? And as it transpired, I was the first one of us to, to land a board seat. So that that was really funny. But I... A little part, voice was in your head again. The little voice was, was on, on the loudspeaker, yes. As part of that program, however, we were paired with a mentor. And my mentor was Maria Clow, who's the president of Harvey Mudd um, University. And she was, on, she was on the board of Microsoft at the 
time. And Marie is just a really seasoned board director, really seasoned professional. She's kind of quite iconic as women in STEM go. And she was really so helpful to me in helping me navigate that first board seat because as, as you and I've talked about, I was in an operating role at UBS at the time. And while we had a policy that we could sit on one external board, as it transpired, it wasn't something in the end that the bank were comfortable with me doing. And it really prompted me then to say, okay, you know, if I'm going to make this pivot, I'll make this pivot and I will leave financial services, I'll leave the bank and I will pursue this first board seat. So Maria was so helpful to me as a mentor in navigating through that that transition. But the way it transpired at the start, however, I was recruited. And as it turns out, for my three public boards and one of my private boards, I have been recruited by the same recruiter. <laughs> and uh, she is a lady called Beth Stewart. Her company is True Star. And TrueStar only do board searches and only when you're looking for a female director. So she believes very, very fundamentally that getting more women on boards is not a supply side problem. It's a demand side process problem. And now that I've been doing this for five years, I completely concur with her. Most searches, unfortunately, start by asking the people around the table, who do you know who'd be great on this board? And that, of course, helps just to perpetuate the problem of more men joining boards than women, because invariably, we all have networks that you know are like ourselves. And particularly in an ecosystem like here in Silicon Valley, it's quite a, it's quite a tight knit community it's quite a a tight knit ecosystem and everybody sort of knows everybody and that I think then just helps to perpetuate that kind of network effect the second issue with board searches particularly for public boards is that a lot of the time searches start with two criteria one is we would like these people to be former or current CEOs or CFOs and we would like them to have prior board experience and when you think about you know certainly trying to put women or people of color on, on boards that reduces the pool of potential candidates down to the size of a puddle if you put those two criteria in place. So in the case of Semantic, they said, you know something, there are 10 of us on this board and all 10 of us have prior board experience. So why on the margin do we need board number, uh, director number 11 to have prior board experience? We've got that base covered. And they also were willing to drop another really important, uh, not so much criteria, but facet, which was that the board candidates had to be known to somebody on the board. And that's sort of back to my point around network. So they decided instead that they would solve for things like age diversity. They would solve for voice of the customer. They wanted somebody with a military background or government background who knew cyber, which is obviously really important for a cybersecurity company, uh, or somebody like myself who came out of the enterprise IT world. And uh, and they so they retained TrueStar to, to do this search. And if they hadn't focus on those types of variables, if they hadn't dropped the traditional criteria and the, the, the relevance of knowing somebody on the board already, someone like me, Devin, I never would have hit their radar screen. They're out in, you know, Mountain View. I was sitting in New York, in, buried in a, in a Swiss bank. I was 37 years old. I'd never been a CEO. I'd never been a board director. I just never would have hit their radar screen if they hadn't have changed the process. So that's back to my point around, if you want a great board and you want to get really diverse candidates and put that, that cognitive diversity in the room, you got to change the process. So what TrueStar then asked semantic to do and what they've done with all of their clients is they say look give me your spec I'll put together a great slate of people who just happen to be women and all I'm going to ask you to do is interview the women first and if you can't find a great director from this slate of women we will by all means open the aperture to include men and now they're at a point where they've 
They've appointed 75 directors and they've never once had to open that aperture. And what actually happened in three of my cases, three of the four boards I've been placed on, they couldn't decide between the final two of us and they ended up taking two women. They appointed two seats. So it just goes to show that this is not really a supply side issue. It's, It's a process side demand, demand side issue. That uh, best Stewart sounds amazing. Yes, I, uh, she is. I love an intro. Does. She sounds fabulous. She's a powerhouse. I, I call her my American tiger mom at this point. Uh, <laughs> she's, uh, she's really a force of nature. She's a mother of five. She was a former uh, Goldman banker back in the days when there weren't many women in that industry. So she was not a professional recruiter. She was just a woman who was sitting on boards herself and decided that she was really disappointed with the lack of diversity and the lack of gender diversity in particular in the room. And she said, I'm going to do something about this. I love hearing stories about women like Beth and I love hearing stories. Uh, there's a woman that we worked with quite a bit, Coco Brown of the Athena Alliance. Oh yes. Very yes. Similar, uh, uh-huh. similar strategy there. And they're really just raising an awareness and educating the market. Um, they've done great work with our portfolio companies. So that's great to hear. Yeah. I want to ask you a question about finding your voice in the boardroom. So we've talked about like finding your seat and your career leading up to your board seats, you get in the seat, right? So you join the board of Symantec. How did you establish yourself? It sounded like it was a a pretty forward thinking group um, and and a group you connected with, but how did you start inserting yourself into conversations? How did you find your voice and really kind of crystallize who you were and what your contribution was going to be in that setting? I'm so glad you asked that question, Devin, because actually that's the more important question than how do you get women onto the board in the first place? Like that you can solve in the way I've just outlined. It's actually very difficult uh, to make this work. Um, and I mean that both in the part of the person joining the board and the board itself. So let me let me illuminate this a little further. When I joined my first board, I was 37, 38 years old. One of the people on the board was 71 or two, and he was iconic. He is iconic, someone I've learned a great deal from. So to say that I felt like a kitty at the grown-ups table is the understatement <laughs> of the century. And boards are different than operating roles, and that's actually a really important distinction for you to learn when you when you make that switch so i i've learned from a lady called Pat Waters, who's the head of HR at ServiceNow. She was formerly the CHRO at LinkedIn. Pat talks about the importance of belonging. So she says diversity and inclusion are kind of necessary, but not sufficient. In order for it to really work, people have to feel like they belong. So that's an important point I'd love to get across to anybody in your audience who is involved in boards. Putting diverse people into the room isn't enough if they don't feel like they belong. And it actually then goes to the role of the chairperson person, chair manager, woman is really important or lead independent to, you know, you want these diverse perspectives in the room. That doesn't make it easy to manage. You know, when you have people who are now going to have differing viewpoints who are going to disagree, you actually have to be quite a skilled chair person in kind of orchestrating that and making sure that everybody has a chance to share their opinion, to disagree in a constructive way, and then kind of reach some form of a consensus to move the organization forward and make whatever decision is on the table. So it's not an easy thing. I struggled, I will admit, at the start in feeling like I didn't belong. 
And I would find myself comparing myself to other directors and wishing that I was a little bit more articulate, a little bit less blunt, a little bit less operational and more strategic. I had all of these kind of ways I was dinging myself. But how I personally have transcended that is I got two great bits of advice. One was from a lady who was my executive coach for years, and she's phenomenal. And she said, Anita, you don't do well when you go into comparison mode. Whenever you start comparing yourself to others, you shut yourself down. And she said, however, you do really well when you're in curiosity mode. So what I do, Devin, is I literally bring a little notebook in with me. And whenever I find myself comparing myself to somebody else, and this just isn't in the board context, this is in every context of my life, I switch to curiosity mode and I go, oh, wow, fascinating how that guy just framed that. Oh, wow, do you see the way she just asked that question and then opened up the conversation instead of closing down the conversation? And, oh, I really like that phrase that person's just used. And I would write it down, make a little note of it. And that kind of flips this switch in my mind to being, like, I feel like I'm back at school. It's opening, I I get creative, I get really collaborative. I actually contribute in a much more constructive and and, uh, impactful way when I'm in that curiosity zone. So that's how I've personally managed to navigate it. But the other bit of advice I got was from a great mentor of mine over the years. And he said, Anita, stop, you have your seat, you're at the table. It, It is your duty to speak up. You're there for a reason. And uh, so I always had, you know, both of those two little bits of advice in the back of my mind whenever I did feel myself uh, reluctant to, to speak up. The importance of good mentors. Oh, that you both an executive much. coach and, and just folks that you can sort of turn to for that kind of advice. I think that's really important. It really but- Really, uh, your advice today has been outstanding. Honestly, so many tangible um, takeaways for the audience. So I'm so so glad that you were able to join us today and, and share your story, your incredible story. And I hope we get the chance to to do more work together in the future. Well, Devin, I would love that. I'm a huge fan of of all that you're doing and the great content and great community you've built around Open View. So thank you for the honor of joining you, and I look forward to uh, continuing to be part of the family going forward. Thanks, Anita. Take care. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you're listening to podcasts these days. And please give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can also follow us on Twitter, at OpenViewVenture, and subscribe to our newsletter that's sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Until next time.